This is the 99X Technology Podcast. Tune in to RTN Tech Sessions every Thursday for practical approaches and solutions to all things tech. Hi guys, I am Bishan Madhavada, your host for the day. Uh, welcome all you to the weekly podcast of 99X Technology. So uh, last week we have briefed about AWS examinations and uh, we have discussed the available uh, exams and what suits you the best and how to choose them and also our recommendations and comments on them. So as we promised this week, we will go through some of the actual questions uh, that I found through AWS Solution Architect Examinations. Uh, joining me to the session, our AWS experts, uh, Dilip and Rifan. Hi guys, uh, shall we brief about yourself to our listeners? Hi Bishan, uh, so I'm Rifan. Uh, I work as a software engineer at 99X Technology. Uh, my AWS experience is around uh, two years, I guess. Uh, work on this project. Uh, I guess uh, uh, the guys from the same project spoke last week. I work on this project uh, uh, called Polymapa, and uh, we use uh, AWS services extensively. And um, I got certified recently. Yeah. Hello. Uh, my name is uh, Dilipa. I again. So. Um, back with the podcast i guess again this week <laughs> uh so yeah i've been uh, working with aws for about two years uh, similar to refund uh we got uh, certified with uh, the solutions architect associate level uh, recently about about a, about a month ago yeah. yeah okay guys then uh, let's go to the questions but uh, first of all uh, even though i found some random questions uh, from uh, solution architect examinations uh, what are the questions based on guys is there any weightage for those questions uh, yeah okay uh, so when you look when you look at the exam it's structured uh, based on the well architecture framework so aws has this white paper that they publish uh, and they update frequently called the well architecture framework uh, it it contains five pillars uh, operational excellence, security, reliability, performance efficiency, and cost optimization. So, it's based on the these questions are based on that, but uh, it has a proportion. Like when you look at uh, in in the in the discussions, there are five domains it covers, similar to the five pillars. Uh, it's resilient architecture, performant architecture, secure architecture, cost optimized architecture, and operationally excellent architecture. So resilient architecture takes uh, takes uh, the highest proportion. Yeah. So I think if you look at the actual numbers, it's about thirty four percent of yeah. the of all the questions are from uh, resilient architecture. So I don't think we need to go the numbers right yeah. now. We can actually attach it to yeah. the show notes. But yeah. then I think it's a good idea for people to yeah. have an understanding that there is a. There is yeah. something called the well architected framework, and that is something you need to be familiar with yeah. uh, before you kind of sit for any AWS exam. Yeah, when you look at the numbers, also, like, when, why resilient architecture takes the highest proportion, like, it kind of makes sense when people want to move to the cloud, yeah. they want a resilient system, yeah. right? and they, yeah. they're looking for resilience, they're looking to leverage uh, cloud services yeah. to achieve resilience. So, it makes kind of sense, yeah. And different types of exams, so this is the yeah. solutions architect we're yeah. talking about, right? So, then yeah. other uh, exams have uh, like the develop exam, exactly, for example, would have a different proportion, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, guys, 
So, uh, I have found some questions uh, from uh, architect examination, AWS architect examination. So, uh, I'll ask you these questions. Uh, hope you guys break these out and give us yeah. the answers. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully, we <laughs> get the answers. <laughs> so, my first uh, question is, uh, there's a radio station runs a current test where every day at noon, they make an announcement that generates an immediate spike. Uh, that will cause traffic, uh, which requires uh, eight EC2 instances to process. So all other times, the website requires uh, just two instances. So which is the most cost-effective way to meet these requirements, guys? Hmm. Yeah, this is a this is an interesting question. I think. Uh, for you to kind of successfully answer this, there's yeah. a few things you need to understand, like some kind of uh, background knowledge that you need to have, right? So right off the bat, you need to understand that this is a scaling problem, yeah. Because uh, regular running is uh, two EC2 instances, yeah. Uh, but during just that specific time, when there's a when there's a spike in the traffic, yeah, that they need to scale up to eight, yeah. So you need to understand that it's a scaling problem, yeah. Uh, and then uh, probably understand uh, that this that it's very efficient for you to have infrastructure that can scale automatically. Yeah, that can scale uh, that can scale uh, up and scale down. Yeah, automatically. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. And uh, the other component, like Dilipa mentioned, elasticity is something that we want yeah. to achieve with cloud. And the other component that you need to uh, look at when you so you can catch up with a few keywords. It says cost effective. So you, 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 your eyes also should go into like uh, thinking in a cost optimized way. So when you look at the answers, uh, the options given there, uh, when you take at the, uh, obviously our viewers, uh, our listeners, sorry, yeah. won't, uh, won't have these, but uh, we can just talk about the approach of answering this uh, question. So mm. you need to take a look at the first answer. It says, create an auto-scaling group with a minimum capacity of two and scale up based on CPU utilization. Yeah. Uh, so CPU utilization, I don't know if uh, because uh, we're looking at a scheduled time. Yeah. So I think something that's important to understand yeah. here. So this is where we kind of dig into the details of EC2 yeah. and auto scaling groups in yeah. EC2, right? Is it possible to scale EC2 groups uh, based on your CPU utilization? Yeah. You you can apply rules. Mm -hmm and then scale so on. yeah so then that's the kind of knowledge you need to have to answer the question yes right? uh, so that uh, so we'll go through the rest of the answers and yeah. see what else yes yeah. uh, what else we have yeah the next one says create an auto scaling group with a minimum capacity of eight at all times so this straight off is a no because it's not cost effective right yeah exactly so what they're saying is you have to have a minimum capacity of eight Whereas you can survive with two, but during spikes you require eight. Yeah. So you're just overpaying for mm. like six, yeah. six, six instances all the time. So yeah. yeah. So it's underutilized. So it's a straight off. No, you should be able to. So there's an approach called uh, uh, the elimination approach, right? So mm. if you're not sure of the answer, you have to like find what answers are wrong and then yeah. cut them off. Kind of eliminate the, yes. the wrong answers, right? Yeah. So that's an easy one for us. Yes. Yeah, so now we are left with three. Yeah. Uh, the third one's like create an auto scaling group with a minimum capacity of two and set a scheduled scale up at 1140. So mm. noon, we're talking like 12, 
p.m. Okay, right, so yeah, right on the dot. Yeah, so 11:40, and then it has some time with a minimum capacity of two instances, and set a schedule to scale up at 11:40 a.m. So, it, yeah, yeah. So this one is interesting because the difference between question uh, answer number three and answer number one is you base you 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 scale up based on CPU utilization or at a specific uh, schedule. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's a so that's kind of like a, an interesting yes. thing that you need yeah. to kind of figure out. Uh, yeah. So we have two candidate answers, right? Mm. So yeah. either one or three. Yeah. We have straight off cut off uh, cut two off. Yeah. If you look at, uh, I just want to take a look at this question again. So it says a radio station runs a contest every day at twelve noon. Mm. They make an announcement that generates an immediate spike in traffic. So we are talking about an immediate spike. So we need to be able to cater that spike. If we are looking at CPU utilization, we will wait till the spike comes up. Exactly. So that's I think the really important thing that you need to understand yeah. because like the, when you break down the question, they're talking about an immediate spike mm. at twelve. Yeah. Right. If you go for a CPU, so the fourth answer, just for the people that are looking at the show notes yeah. and seeing yeah. the answers, right? The fourth answer is the same as the third one. So you scale up mm. with a minimum capacity of two and scale up based on uh, memory. memory utilization. Yeah. The problem with the first question and the uh, the the first answer and the fourth answer yeah. is that you are going to scale up based on something that happens in real time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. CPU utilization and memory utilization is something that's happening yeah. in real time. Yeah. It actually takes time for the EC2 instances to scale up. Yeah. And for them to provision the required resources. Yes. Right? So that's I think the most important thing here to yeah. understand. Yeah. When you talk about an immediate spike, yeah. you need to be ready to handle it. Exactly. At that time, you can't kind of say, "Okay, give me a little bit of time. I need to get my instances up and things like that." The request, I'm not going to wait for that kind yes. of time, right? So that's why the answer for this one is the third one. The third one. Yeah, right? that's you. You start scaling up at 11:40 yeah. every day because yeah. you know for sure yeah. that at least according to the question, yeah. uh, that this is going to happen. In, uh, exactly. Uh, that you're going to get this amount of traffic every day at noon, exactly at that time. Yeah, so we provision, uh, so we know 12 noon we're going to get a huge load, so we provision 20 minutes prior yeah. and we prepare for the load. Exactly. Okay, guys, uh, even though this question seems uh, somewhat of easy questions, but it seems like really tricky. Yeah, yeah. They so, are actually, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. So my next question is, guys, uh, an application runs on EC2 instances uh, in an auto scaling group. The application run optimally on nine EC2 instances and must have at least six running instances to mainly uh, so maintain minimally acceptable performance uh, for short periods of time. Yeah. Which is the most cost-effective auto scaling group configuration uh, that meets the requirement? Yes. Yeah. Uh, this question is uh, it is again from a design performance architecture. So we are, we are looking uh, at uh, we are looking at this question from that angle, and a cost effective component is also mentioned in this question. Yeah. And uh, something you need to understand, like uh, something that is very important to understand, is the difference between fault tolerance and high availability. Yeah. So in this question, we're talking about uh, application runs optimally on nine instances and must have at least six instances uh, to maintain minimally acceptable performance. So we cannot go beyond 
six. Uh, we can't go less than six. less than six, and optimally we need nine. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the answers, it talks about a distribution of instances across availability zones. So the first one, uh, a desired capacity of nine instances across two availability groups, right? Yeah, across. So we are not going to dig into the concept of uh, availability zone in this podcast. I think yeah. that's something that uh, the yeah. listeners can do on their own time. Yes. Uh, so yeah, so the first answer is a desired capacity of nine instances across two AZs. Uh, answer B is nine instances across three AZs. Uh, answer three is a capacity of 12 instances across two AZs. Yeah. And the fourth one is a capacity of nine instances across one AZ. Yeah. So I think right off the bat, we can kind of eliminate the fourth one. Yeah. Right? Because we are having all nine instances in one AZ. Yeah. Which is a complete no. Yes. Uh, when you th think about uh, fault tolerance. Yeah. So if one availability zone goes down, all nine is gone down, right? So yeah. We eliminate the fourth one then? Yes. yes. Uh, if you take a look at the first one, uh, so nine instances across two availability zones, if one goes down, you end up with maybe four. Yeah. Um, sorry, maybe five or, or maybe four. four. Yeah, but it's not acceptable because we are looking at six instances to maintain minimally acceptable performance. Yeah. yeah. So the difference between fault tolerance and high availability is fault tolerance has zero uh, service interruption. High availability may have a little bit of service interruption, mm. right? But not zero. Uh, and if you look at this, so we've eliminated the fourth one and, and the first one, one yeah. based on the number of instances remaining when one availability zone is down. Yeah. Uh, so what about the third one? 12 instances across two availability zones, yeah. right? So that kind of fits our requirements a little bit because yeah. you have 12 instances running yeah. constantly yeah. across two availability zones. If one goes down, you have six remaining. Yeah. Doesn't sound like a wrong answer to me. Yeah. But the problem here is we are looking at this question in a cost-effective angle too. Yeah. See, so we tough. have 12, we need to have 12 instances running to maintain, uh, so to to handle the issue of one availability zone going down, right? Mm -hmm. So we are going to pay for 12 instances. Whereas but we just need nine to optimally run the yes. application. Yeah, and right. uh, the minimal one is six. So we're just overpaying for like three instances. Yeah. So then we naturally come to the answer, which is uh, the second answer. Yeah. So nine instances across three availability zones. Yeah. It's very rare you will have a situation where uh, you'll have uh, two availability zones go down at the same time. Because yes. when they say availability zones, these are actually geographically different locations. Yes. Yeah. In uh, So geographically different data centers. In the same region. In the same region that AWS yeah. runs, right? So it's very unlikely that two Things, yeah. Even with from natural disaster situation, that two things go down at the yeah. same time. So it's kind of safe to say, okay, you need nine instances running to have it optimally running. If one goes down, you still have six running. So that is the most uh, cost effective yeah. that uh, gets the job done as well. Yes. So just to just to visualize for our viewers, uh, for our listeners, sorry, I'm getting this wrong all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
a desired, so the second one is a desired capacity of nine instances across three availability zones. So we have nine, that is how much we need to have optimally running. And if one goes down, we end up with six. So that is our minimum requirement. So, yeah. So if you, if, you, if you just look at how we have approached the last mm. two questions, we have taken that elimination approach. So if yeah. we are not sure of the answer, we are trying to find the wrong answer. Yeah. And we're yeah. looking at uh, keywords in this question. Yeah. So far, guys, uh, we nailed the questions, I think. So uh, my next question is, uh, you are running an EC2 instance which use EBS for storing its state. You take an EBS snapshot every day. When the system crashes, it takes you 10 minutes to bring it up again from the snapshot. What is your RTO and uh, RPO going to be? Okay, so I think just to define what RTO and RPO is, RTO is recovery time objective yeah. and recovery point objective. Yes. That's RPO. Yeah. Um, what is RTO? What, uh, what is your recovery time objective when you say? Okay, so when you say RTO, uh, when you have a failure, how long does it take for you to recover? Is yeah. your recovery time objective? So let's say I have a production down, I, I can bring it up in one hour. Mm. That's my RTO. That's your recovery time objective. Yes. How long does it take for you to recover from a, yeah. from downtime? Yes. And then your recovery point object. Yes. So it's the point of time yeah. in terms of the production application state. Uh, typically, the state of data. Let's yeah. say I have a downtime at 10 a.m. Okay. I can bring the application back maybe in one hour. That's my RTO. But I can bring it up to the state where it was at 9.45. So yeah. 15 minutes is my recovery point objective. So you, it's kind of safe to say that's the last time your application was backed up. Yeah. Yeah. So if your backup is running once a day at 9.45 a.m. every day, yeah. then uh, your recovery point objective is 9.45 on that day. So yeah. anything that happened after 9.45, you cannot recover because you haven't backed that up. Okay. So uh, depends on your system. You might back up once an hour, you might back up once a day. So yeah. that's your RPO. So yeah. to answer this question, it's important to understand those two concepts, like the RTO and the RPO, the yeah. difference between those two. Yeah. It's kind of easy to get those two confused. But yeah. Yeah. If you're looking at a typical SQL system, which I'm familiar with, mm. you have a backup strategy running, right? Mm. So you have transactional log backups running, then you have uh, full backups running, and yeah. then you have uh, differential backups running so you run a strategy based on that you calculate your recovery point objective yeah. and for you to recreate uh, the backup so you would uh, you would restore a full backup and then on top of that you would uh, restore the differential backups and on top of that you would uh, restore the transactional log backups so that is your recovery time objective how long it takes for you to restore all of those yes and then you yes. get back to your RPO yeah yeah so back to this question uh, you're running an instance, EC2 instance, which uses EBS for storing its state. You take an EBS snapshot every day. So EBS snapshots are your backups. Uh, every day when the system crashes, it takes you 10 minutes to bring it up again from the snapshot. What is your RTO and RPO going to be? So straightforward, this question says your RTO, right? Yeah. Mm. So it takes 10 minutes for you to bring it up from the snapshot, mm. right? Yeah. So your snapshot time should be RPO straight off. Uh, if you take a look at the first question, mm. 
I think I went to the answer straight away. Yeah, I th- yeah, but I think this is this question is not as tricky as the other ones. Yes. This is very straightforward, yeah. and we can just dive right on th- into the answer. The answer is uh, B. Uh, the second answer, which where your RTO is ten minutes, mm, and yeah. your RPO will be one day. Yeah. So the question itself has the answer, right? Yeah, exactly. So when you say you take an EBS snapshot every day, mm. that's your RPO one day. And when the system crashes, it takes you 10 minutes to bring it up. That's your RTO. Yeah. So you can see like how some questions are kind of straightforward. Yeah, but the sure. other ones That's are... what I'm going to say. Like, <laughs> yeah. Some can be very tricky. Yeah. Some can be it's pretty straightforward. Well. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to understand the concepts of RTO and RPO. Because yeah. if you don't yeah. know the concept, then you'll be confused. Yeah. yeah. Sure. So, uh, my next question, guys. Uh, you have to run a batch job every Sunday night. The job completes in less than 90 minutes and cannot be postponed. Which easy to payment model should you use? Okay, so again, so here some kind of like a little bit of background knowledge you need to have is uh, kind of like what is a batch job and uh, like uh, just understand that uh, it can like batch jobs are stuff that takes a lot of processing power usually and stuff that we cannot do in real time uh, for certain reasons. Uh, and we choose to do this during an off-peak time. So whenever the application has least amount of usage is when we choose to run batch jobs, right? Uh, so, yeah, so the question says uh, which kind of uh, EC2 payment model you should use to, uh, to have the EC2 instance that runs the batch job. So here it's kind of important to understand uh, what EC2 payment models you already have on uh, AWS. So just off the start, uh, we have an on-demand instance. Yeah. Uh, we have on-demand price, uh, pricing. We have uh, reserved instance yeah. pricing, uh, and, spot pricing. Yeah. And uh, and we have uh, scheduled uh, reserved instances too. Mm. So here again, this question is pretty straightforward. If you understand the pricing categories uh, yes. of each EC2 instance, yeah. so just uh, right off the bat, the answer is uh, on demand. Yeah. Uh, I'm not. Uh, do you think we need to dig into the pricing models a little bit? Uh, oh, I don't. Uh, why it's straightforward? It's important to understand why it's straightforward. So if you take a look at reserved instances, you need to be paying like for the old whole reserve period, but it's for a lesser amount. So you're paying too much. This yeah. is a cost optimization special. Yeah. Uh, spot instances, you may, you may get the instance or not. So you cannot postpone these jobs. Mm. So that won't work. Yeah. Uh, on demand is the right one because yeah. you get it right yeah. then yeah. and there. You get it then and there, and it just runs for ninety minutes and then it yeah. shuts off. So that's the best pricing that you can get for this type of job. So it's kind of important to understand the the pricing categories in each thing. Okay guys, uh, my next question is uh, which AWS database service is best suited for non-relational databases? Yeah, so uh, again, here it's uh, not so much of background knowledge you need to have. Uh, I guess uh, the only thing you need to properly understand is uh, what is a non-relational database yeah. and uh, the kind of uh, services like non-relational database services that yeah. AWS provides. Yeah, it's just knowing the service offerings. Mm-hmm. So straight off, if you look at the first answer, it's uh, Amazon Redshift, uh, usually used for big data workloads yeah. uh, or data warehouses. Yeah. And then uh, when you take, uh, so the second uh, answer could be straightly eliminated because it's 
relation Amazon relational database service RDS yeah so it's obviously not yeah. that because they are asking for non-relational non databases uh, if you look at the next two answers Amazon Glacier is an archival uh, storage service yeah it has nothing to do with databases at yeah all, so that's also straight yeah. off uh, straight off elimination uh, so it's a pretty much straightforward answer, right? So Amazon DynamoDB, everyone knows it. Uh, if you're if you're prepared for the exam, you would definitely go through it. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's the answer. Yeah. Okay. So the next one is guys. Uh, your web service has a performance uh, SLA to respond to ninety nine percent of requests in uh, less than one second. Under normal and heavy operations, distributing requests over four instances meet performance requirements. What architecture ensure cost-efficient fault-tolerant operation uh, of your service if an availability zone becomes unreachable? Okay, so this, if you're looking at this uh, question, it's again uh, uh, a resilient architecture-related question. And it's talking about the fault tolerance component here. Yeah. So, like I mentioned, like we mentioned previously, it's important to understand the difference between high availability and fault tolerance. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, basically, what they're saying is, uh, you have a service level agreement that's an SLA, right? Yeah. To respond to ninety-nine percent of requests under one second. Yeah. Uh, so if you can do this on the normal and heavy operations uh, over four instances, yeah. then uh, what? Again, we need to talk about cost efficiency as well. Yeah. So those are a few things to keep in mind yeah. when you're answering the question. Exactly. So uh, two components: cost effectiveness and fault tolerance. Something you need to keep in mind. Yeah. Uh, so the first answer is deploy the service on four servers in a single availability zone. Again, it's similar to this question that we discussed previously. Yeah, we discussed something similar previously, yes. right? So then I think from that knowledge, you can kind of eliminate the, yeah. the first answer. Yeah. 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 And uh, deploy the service on six servers in a single availability zone. Again, when you're talking, so it's if you, if you can keep a few things in mind, if an answer talks about single availability zone, it's a straight off no. You don't have to look back at it. You don't yeah. have to think twice. It's just not highly available or it's not fault tolerant. Yeah. So we are talking about the last two answers. Straight off, the first two you can eliminate. Don't worry about it. So you're talking about the last two answers. Uh, the, the third one is deploy the service on four servers across two availability zones. Uh, yeah, but uh, when you look at this question, uh, it says under normal and heavy operations, distributing request over four instances meets requirement. So we're talking about four servers across two availability zones, which means two in each, right? So when one is down, one availability zone is down, you have only two remaining. So yeah. you can use the pre uh, the, uh, the knowledge from the previous question that we answered. Yeah. It's similar to that. So I guess uh, Dilipa, the answer is the fourth one, yeah? Yeah, it's eight servers across two availability zones. So you can kind of see how this is a little different from the available answers, right? Yeah. From the previous question. So the previous question, we said you have to run 12 instances, I think, over across two. Nine, nine across three. No, but then we eliminated yeah. one answer that said 12 across two, yes, right? Yes, yes. So then here we are saying eight across two is okay. Yeah. 
but, but, but then it doesn't meet the cost efficiency requirement. So mm-hmm. ideally in real in, in a real world scenario, this is not what you would do. Yeah. But these are the options you have. Yeah. Right? You have four across two or eight across two. When you have four servers across two AZs, we like like you said just now, that's not four torrent. So you kind of eliminate that. Yeah. Uh, when you say eight across two, again, that's not cost optimal. Yeah. But at least you can meet your SLA. Yes. So that's kind of why the answer should be D. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. So little. So again, this question is a little tricky. Yeah. But again, if you follow the process that Pifan was talking about, the elimination process, you can kind of arrive at the correct answer there. So this is the best option out of all four. Okay, guys. Then, uh, uh, okay, so that's uh, those are the questions that I have mm-hmm. uh, that I randomly picked uh, from the associate uh, architect examination. Cool. So, uh, so while I'm going through this, I've uh, heard of the term cheat sheet. So, mm-hmm. can you guys uh, just uh, 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 tell me about uh, cheat sheets and what are the advantages and things on cheat sheets yeah so a cheat sheet is nothing much basically it's a easy reference right like you remember in uni we used to do these uh, short notes right of uh, these long lectures and we just uh, refer the short notes so this is exactly something like that so these are it, it's a bunch of short notes kind of thing on uh, aws services that has been compiled by the community so the thing is you can't expect to read all of the AWS documentation for every yeah. single service just before yeah. the exam, right? It's not practical. So there are certain key things that you need to know and uh, there are certain serv- uh, services that offer this information. Yeah. So that's basically the uh, yes. cheat sheet. Yeah. If you take a look at uh, the process of preparing for the exam, which we spoke about mm-hmm. in the last week, Dilip and Budhika spoke about this, it's uh, all about uh, uh, going through uh, uh, a video series if you can. Yeah. And uh, the recommended one is the exam readiness guide uh, video series in AWS. Yeah. So you sign up for the exam in the uh, content library, you have this video series, which goes through each uh, domain that is covered uh, in the exam, the five domains mm-hmm. that we mentioned at the start. And it goes through examples, questions, and explains how the elimination process works. Yeah. It's an important video to go through. And then you obviously go through the documentation. Yeah. It's hectic, but you should try to cover at least uh, S3, uh, EC2, and some of the important ones. And then you're looking at FAQs uh, and uh, cheat sheets. So I should recommend a Tutorial Dojo. So shout out for those guys for running that site, tutorialsdojo.com. Uh, this is not sponsored. <laughs> uh, these guys have a really good uh, yeah. compiled cheat sheet that you can go through for each service. And they do even have comparisons between uh, different solution types. So there are tricky questions when it comes to S3 and stuff like that. So when you go to the cheat sheets, you can uh, sort of... Um, so it's like a, a digital version of a short note that we prepared exactly. for maybe a examinations kind of thing. So yes. it's like something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Important points. You yeah. can just go through yeah. that rather exactly. than uh, reading on a huge documentation. Yes. But then having said that, I have to say that uh, the, the, the the cheat sheet is not a replacement for a 
course or a document that covers the complete uh, yeah. use of S3. Yeah, exactly. So you have to, it's like, it's the same thing like attending a lecture versus just reading mm. a short note, right? Yeah. So you can't read a short note and expect to get through an exam. You yeah. have to attend the lecture because there's a lot of background knowledge that you get from attending the lecture. Yeah. So you need to have that information. If you just go use the cheat sheets alone, that's... Uh, you're just setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Yeah. Might work for some people, but not. But but, but I would really recommend that you have a lot of hands-on experience yeah. with uh, these different. At least courses. even a practical scenario. You yes. If you go through the yeah. entire thing, you have yeah. a better knowledge than yeah. going on specific points. Exactly. Yes. Just for the sake of doing exam. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> At least from my experience writing the exam, I can. I'm sure Dilip can relate it relate to this too. Uh, having worked with AWS helped a lot. Yeah, for, for, sure, yeah. for some questions, if we didn't even know the right answer, even at least to visualize these answers given yeah. and try to get the right one, the working experience was really helpful. Yeah. And uh, I should mention the practice exams that we tried out was with labs, hmm. uh, which was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. They, had, they had a good set of questions. Okay, guys. So uh, that's all I have to ask from you guys. Uh, Thank you, Billy and Rifan, for sharing your knowledge uh, with us. And yeah. uh, guys, please follow us through any major podcasting platform since we are available on all now. Uh, hope you guys. Uh, good luck. So, see you guys next week. Okay. All right. Thank okay. you for having us. Yes. Uh, thank, thank you. you. See you guys. Bye.